Hello, hi, and welcome back to the Hardcore Sobriety Podcast. My name is Logan Slaughter, also known as Logan Hardcore when I'm up in the drags. And this week we have a very special episode of the podcast. If it's your first time here, this is a podcast dedicated to all things in the world of recovery. I will have interviews with people about their recovery and their opinions on what's going on in the world and how they handle the world in recovery. But this week I wanted to post the interview from a podcast I was actually a guest on. You may have seen me posting it all over Instagram. It is called Rooted Recovery Stories, and the host of it is a new friend of mine, Patrick Custer, who I'm actually interviewing this Friday to have on next week's episode to kind of, you'll hear his story. So without further ado, you guys, this is probably the most vulnerable and honest in an interview I've been since getting sober. Here we are. Um, It is me. The guest of this week's show is me being interviewed by Patrick Custer for Rooted Recovery Stories. All of his information and the information for his podcast will be linked in the description below. Welcome to the Recovery Stories podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Welcome to this episode of Rooted Recovery Stories. My name is Patrick Custer, and I'm your host. I am so glad to be with you all once again this week with a very, very special person that I'm so excited to talk to today and share our conversation with you all, Logan Slaughter. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank Uh, you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, I've really enjoyed our time getting to know each other so far, and uh, we've gotten to have uh, plenty of prepara- preparatory conversations, and um, and this is just going to be an extension of that, and I, I'm just so, so very excited to uh, share this platform today. So let's just start off where, where your life started off uh, in talking about, um, you know, where, where you were when you were born. What was your family life like? How were your parents? You know, all those things that make up those those really important early years for us individuals. All of the fun stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was born (laughs) in a really backwards, white trash, redneck town called Prescott, Arizona. And it's like two hours north of Phoenix, two hours south of Flagstaff, smack dab in the middle of like the mountains. So it's not what you think when you think of Arizona. We had all four seasons, but like Trump country. Like that's when he was running for office, I was like, I know who your people are because I grew up with them. Mm. Um, And my parents were really supportive of me being gay. I've always been very outgoing. Like I never hid anything. I was in theater I've always done makeup. So like my parents were very, very supportive. My mom, not so much at first, you know, but once she turned the corner, she was like fully on board. They came to New York. They've seen me perform. They've been to Fire Island. It's they've done it all. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, I know that you've talked about, uh, you know, identifying in an early age. What was though, what was, what was your, growing up time like you know living in a society that was heavily conservative uh you know going to school uh when did you start to express yourself in a way you know obviously you started to feel different at a young age and you identified (laughs) as thus um how did you know how how early was it that you started to outwardly express yourself different than the other boys um and how did that affect you how did that kind of play out and and what did that look like I mean, I always, there's not a period of my life I don't remember knowing. I always knew I was different. I remember being in like third grade 
And there was a Spice Girls oversized, like extra large woman's t-shirt at Ross. And I was like, I want that. My mom was like, well, one, it's a dress and two people are going to make fun of you. And I was like, I don't care. So like, I guess from third grade on, I was pushing the limits, but really like high school, I kind of kicked it into overdrive and like wore a full face of makeup with a smoky eye. Like what the makeup artists nowadays are doing. I was like the boys, I was doing that in 2002, Um, you know, full face of makeup, women's jeans. I carried a Louis Vuitton bag as a backpack. Um, It just, I never didn't kind of, present myself i've pushed the limits and i pushed it especially there because i knew it would ruffle feathers and i'm a feather ruffler (laughs) um well i kind of that's one of the things that i kind of love about you and you know i'm very interested in something that the in one of our last conversations we talked about was um you know this whole idea of of you know we talk about um the different you know we have the whole spectrum of sexual uh, orientation gender identity expressing ourselves as you know uh, as the gender we were either born with not born with feminine masculine all those things and um you know i'm kind of curious what your what your perspective is on how Base when you started at that stage, being feminine, how you felt inside, expressing that outwardly, versus and how you've evolved through the years, and now embracing that in your profession, right? Um, what did it look like then, and what does it look like now for you when we talk about how masculinity is held on this pedestal? both inside the LGBTQ world or the gay men's world. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I, I shouldn't just say, but, but especially the gay men, the gay men's world. Um, and then also in the land of straight people. Yes. Um, I, I want to know what your thoughts are on that because it's a big, that's a big conversation, but something it's I think so worthy of having a huge conversation. And like, I've always been feminine. I've never tried to, put it on for anyone. I never like, I go to the gym, I work out, I have a trainer, but like, I never wanted to be that person. I've always known that I was a feminine man. I never questioned that. Um, You know, even in doing drag, it was always putting makeup on. And at the end of the night, I took it off and I was a man and I knew it, but like, it's been very wild to watch the gay community over 15 years from Mm -hmm. like when I moved to New York and was on the apps and the websites and everything, it was masculine for masculine, no fats, no femmes. And like, I remember have like my friends that do drag were like, we never tell anyone what we do because like, they're not going to want to hook up with us. And I was like, I'm the opposite. It's the first thing I'm telling you. Like I brought one, I was so well known in the scene in New York that you probably knew me anyway. Two, it was like, I'm not going to get there and be embarrassed. So I was always very upfront with it. And then Drag Race came around and like kind of shook. It's like a snow globe, I feel like. It shook it up Mm -hmm. and everything's landing where it lands. And now like it's great to do drag and it's the cool thing in the gay community. And it's looked up upon. And it's no surprise to me that that's because of money. Because the fame and money aspect of that that comes with it, that now it's not shamed. And, you know, you see masculine guys doing drag. Like, there's bodybuilders like Cameron Michaels that do drag. And it's just, Mm. you're seeing that this fragile masculinity is more so on those masculine people are the ones trying to protect it than anyone. Hmm. Great point. Great, great point. Um, you know, it's, uh, gosh, you know, we talk about it being such a big conversation. Um, I know for, for me growing up, 
uh, where I did, I, I remember comments from either my family members or whatever, you know, if I held my hand a certain way, mm-hmm. it was like my, my wrist went limp or whatever. I remember there were comments like, people Oh yeah. Like, you need to watch that. Like people are going to think, you know, whatever. And I mean, of course at the, at the time I did not know I couldn't, I, there was too much going on with my ability to have insight into my truth, my actualized, uh, you know, authenticity. Um, but, you know, I look back and I think of some of those things. You can weave this thread into, uh, you know, patterns of societal reinforcement of, of what we're talking about. And um, so I bring that up because I think it's something that is important as we have these conversations, as, as um, the LGBTQIA plus community is getting more visibility, both, uh, you know, just in, in real life and then also radio, film, TV, the media. Oh, yes. Um, it's, you know, there are more conversations with regular people at work saying, you know, uh, you know, talking about things and the those issues it's becoming more acceptable people who (laughs) people random people will come to me because i might be the only gay person that they know right and so so i think it's it's so important that um that we are you know within our own communities having this open and honest dialogue about while we're having grace for trying to ask for grace and have grace for the uh, like the straight people, the people outside that aren't allies yet, or maybe trying to become allies. What are we doing within our own community to um, be more aware about our kindness and tolerance with one another and understanding with, uh, with, with all of that. And I think we've got a long way to go. I was going to say, we're not doing anything. No, no. <laughs> Gay men you know, are the worst. <laughs> um, I can't say that no one's doing anything, but as a whole, I think there's, like you said, we've got a very long way to go, in my opinion. Um, and I could compare it to, you know, a lot of my girlfriends just talk about how they feel like, uh, you know, cis women uh, have a long way to go in supporting each other in, in those realms as well. I can't speak to that because I'm not a cis woman, you know, but, or women in general, I won't Mm -hmm. even say just cis women, but just all women. Um, my friends constantly are saying, you know, that's something where we're, we're asking for equality. Some of us are demanding it. We're, you know, giving this push for feminism and what have you, but (laughs) You know, it's I, a lot of those same things where there's so much infighting and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, I get like I bring that dialogue up because one of the things that I just love so much about you and um, others that embrace their feminine side um, in all different kinds of ways um, in that drag was for me what let me um, step outside of that box from just, you know, when I was able to say I'm gay, which was hard enough in and of itself, mm-hmm. but then t- I liked drag. Like it immediately drew me when I, f- I remember the first, where do you go when you first come out and your friends take you somewhere, you know, they take you to a gay club a bar. Right? and I, uh, a bar. Right. And I remember being mesmerized and just thinking like, it was just so magical. I thought I was so entertained. I thought it was the coolest thing. Um, and I would love to know the name of the first person you saw. <laughs> oh my God. It was, you know what? I, it was probably, uh, the princess. At, oh my know, God. Play dance bar in Nashville. Which oh, is so at least you there. had a good bar. Like imagine being in Ohio <laughs> or like North Dakota and you have to go to like the first place is called like mosquitoes and it's in a barn and see, imagine what I'd- they have to see. I didn't know for years. I thought that every regular town had a, a bar like play where but we um, don't even have that here in New York, which, you know, when I went to Chicago for the first time, which embarrassingly wasn't that long ago, um, I think it was like six years, five, five or six years ago. Um, I, I remember going and I was like, wait, where, where's the, what? There, yeah. We, we had a hard time finding they'd, at the time, they did not have a place where you could go find a good drag show every night of the week. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have drag um, shows everywhere, but there's no like place where it's like a review show with a cast right. where they have a dressing room, where they have choreography. Mm-hmm. Like there's one night a week shows and I'm not going to downplay them, but. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, it's a little crusty. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, uh, I have high hopes for uh, drag. It's such an art. And I think it's something to be respected. And I love that. I think I believe I, and I, from an outsider's perspective, that more respect is coming more visibility. And while we talk about some of the negatives that maybe Hollywood is, <laughs> has, is that are coming along with it. Um, I'm hoping that the positive uh, eventually outweighs the negative, but um, yeah, because there is it's there. It was so weird to me because I just talked about this on my podcast with someone, but like gay people are already hidden. You feel already mm-hmm. the need to hide. Then you go into this gay community and you start doing drag, which makes you feel even more ashamed because it wasn't accepted. So there's two mm-hmm. layers. Then if you have an addiction pro- problem on top of that, you have another level of shame. There, mm-hmm. So like the level of shame that people feel for a very long time and sometimes never get out of, is a lot. And the fact that like drag is being glorified with drag race and it's all over everywhere now. And it's Mm -hmm. in commercials. Like now it's bringing this light to it. That's great. And I'm sure that helps some people, but it's very, it's a double edged sword for me because it's, it's starting to feel like Disneyland. And I promise you, I don't get in drag to take a hundred photos with people. I get in drag to perform. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, I'm very grateful that it's re- like received well most of the time, but it was almost more fun when it was dirty and hidden and a little less glamorous. Interesting. Um, that's just me. There's yeah. probably people making millions of dollars off this a year that will tell me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, you know, change is always weird, especially, you know, you can even say this. Oh gosh. How would I, I think that a lot of people who lived in the closet could say the same thing about living in the closet before they came out. Then after they came out, um, there's something to be said for things being a secret and having this, that extra level of maybe excitement that's, that accompanies it. I don't know. Um, and not that drag was a secret before. I just mean that like, things change once they become big and known and, um, yeah, it's just, and it's I don't just, know if secret was the right word, but like you, f- I felt a level of shame within our community for being a drag queen. I never felt masculine enough. I never felt like I was going to meet someone that could put up with it. I was looked yeah. down upon because I chose it. So between being gay, that, and knowing I had an addiction problem, it was like, where, what's the point of all this? Because right. you're, you're supposed to be the community that's making me feel good and you're making me feel like shit. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Um, you are a recovering person, and yes. obviously, we've established that you are a an artist and a, quite a talented artist in the field of drag as well. So I want to talk about how you how how both of these those things fell into your life. When did you start? Um, you know, we talked about you know expressing yourself in more feminine ways and what have you. But when did you really start um, practicing drag? How did you fall into that? Uh, probably 2005. I was getting ready to move to New York in 2006. I was 16 in 2005. And I remember just like, it was MySpace. MySpace was huge. So like, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. seeing boys wearing makeup. So I started wearing makeup and I fell in love with the art of makeup. I hate doing it on other people, but like, I love doing it on myself it's therapeutic. It's there's like a meditative moment for it, like for me. Um, and just the transformation was really special. And um, when I moved, like I did drag at Halloween when I was young, like I was Brie Vandekamp from Desperate Housewives and Angel from Rent and like the little girl from The Ring, but like nothing. Like I started doing drag when I moved to New York, the night I moved here. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. My ex-boyfriend was a drag queen and he put me in drag and we went out and the rest is history. And, you know, 
hand in hand go nightlife and drugs and alcohol. I mean, yeah, it's very hard not to get wrapped up into that off the bat. Yep. I can't, I cannot agree more. So <clears throat> that happened and you get into that lifestyle. Like you find this haven of acceptance and celebration for who you are for a huge part of who you are and being able to express yourself and start making a living doing that and, um, and, and to be celebrated. Um, but as many of us who are in recovery uh, know that when we get into the realm of, of, I mean, I don't know a lot of people that say when they first start using and drinking, they didn't say, oh my God, I found my community because oh, no. it feels amazing at first. Oh, yes. You find your people where you feel like everybody accepts your behavior. You're all doing the same thing. You really basically all have the same goal regularly or most very similar goals, you know? Yeah. You're here for the party and you just want to have a good time and I mean, honestly, get along and, and what have you. I mean, it's, it's euphoric. Yes. And so it's fun until it's not fun. So Bingo. <laughs> when did you start having some consequences? What were they? And what did that look like for you? I never had consequences. Like it was glorified how much of a mess I was. I got paid more. People wanted to hire me. Like they knew mm -hmm. they were getting the fun girl. All the girls around knew I knew where the drugs were. Like it's, it was, there was no consequences. I threw a shoe mm. at someone's head and chopped a piece of their ear off and I lost wait, my- Wait, 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 I need a little more detail. I already know this story. Okay, so <laughs> paint the picture, what was happening and what kind of shoe was it? I need all the, I okay, need you to break so it down. It was, I was performing at a bar in New York that's no longer there, I wonder why. And it was called <laughs> Vlada and it was like- essentially the size of a hallway like you open the front door and it's just a long thin room and there was couches on one side and the bar on the other side and so we performed uh -huh. in the entryway to the bar so like when someone came in they would open the door and there was a drag queen in front of them and you would like they would be behind us and they'd have to walk around so <laughs> Does that make I, sense? Because that, that's <laughs> New York. That's how we are right. constantly treated. Um, and I was drunk and high. Like, I used to do drugs on stage doing Whitney Houston numbers or, like, jump into the photo booth that was on the stage front door. And I would, like, do a bump in there and then, like, pop back out. And everyone was like, ah, she's so wild. And then this guy walked in and I said something to him. And he looked at me and said, I hope you get AIDS and die. And I just snapped. And my drunk and high thought of how to handle this was, let me take off my seven-inch platform heel and throw it. And I missed him. I hit the DJ and chopped a piece of his ear off. And I left. I finished my number and I left. The, got paid and left the bar and went down the street to the other bar with one shoe. And was like, girls, you're never going to believe what happened. And I woke up the next day and I had no more gigs. Everyone had fired me via email. And I moved to Fire Island that night and was then booked on Fire Island for a whole summer. Because everyone loves Logan. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, so again, it's there like was no door. consequence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... When did it, I mean, what internally, when did you start to have a conversation with yourself? This may not be what I want for Logan. So I met my husband, my now husband in 2012. And like, he comes from the corporate, he worked for Ralph Lauren and Vince Camuto, and now he's in education. But like, he had a college like experience with drinking, but never anything that I've right provided <laughs> right and so like, like we the met, normal person yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like we met on fire island so like he immediately like he knew what went on and i mm. remember like the end of the season when we met in july in like august probably he was like i really wish you would stop doing drugs like that's just not something i want in my life and i was like okay 
And we moved in together in September. So we met in July, moved in in September. I mean, we were full-blown lesbians. And, um, you know, I did stop. I remember that I stopped for about 90 days doing drugs. And then I was out with all my girlfriends for the first time in a long time. And one of my good girlfriends that everyone knows because she won a very famous drag reality show was like, girl, just do the bump. You haven't done it in forever. Like do it. And I was like, okay. And that just started the cycle again. And then I was hiding it. This went on for years. We took a break. We got married. Like, and then I was getting to the point where like, I knew he looked for it. So I would hide it like in the living room remote where the battery goes. (laughs) Okay. Hold on. Remember where you are, because I want to, I want to bring up a point here and ask you about something. So, you find this guy you're like i know a future i want i like i like him i want to be together and you know in order for me to do this i need to cut this behavior out so you were doing all of that for him yeah were you not i mean yeah i didn't want to stop yeah so did he ask you to when you first quit or did you feel the pressure like how did that how did that it was just brought up before the summer ended he was like i really wish you would stop doing this and like in my mind i was like it's probably healthier like i can still drink i can still do all that but they just go hand in hand for me yeah totally um that makes that makes so much sense so you start up again (laughs) you uh, oh my god and it just it got and it increased like i remember there was a time where i was doing like a bag of cocaine over a weekend or a week. And then it was getting to the point where I was doing one to two bags of cocaine a night, a show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would, Fire Island did nothing to help me. I'm grateful for my experiences there. I had 14 years of employment at the Ice Palace Resort and, you know, made what will be a legacy for myself because no one did what I did out there. And I changed the face of performing on Fire Island and I'm forever grateful for it. And, but like, it's normalized out there to get up and start drinking at 10 a.m. and everything's open till four. Mm. So I lived that life for 14 summers and it took a toll on me. And I very, in 2012, when me and my husband first got together, I realized I had an issue. I was like, okay, I'm not able to slow this beast down. Um, so, I, there were times where I would take a break here or there, but I just always went back and it was just getting worse and worse. And like, now we're fighting about it. Now I'm hiding it. I was hiding it in, like I said, the remote in the living room. And I was hiding yeah. a bag of cocaine in the book on his nightstand because I know he didn't read it. Like places he wouldn't look. But uh-huh, like, uh-huh. To keep my addiction going, I was putting everything on the line. And mm. I'm very lucky that I'm with someone that, Loved me enough to put up with a lot of shit because I put him through it. <laughs> hmm. How would you say that? Uh, did you, it sounds like he had some pretty good boundaries? Uh, you just knew how to get around him. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah. And I also yeah. thought I was getting away with everything. And like now that I look back, I'm like, you knew, you know, the whole time, like, you know, I'm drunk, Mm. you know, I mean, the drinking wasn't really the issue. The fact that I did drugs and how much I drank, it all just went hand in hand. And, um, but like I drove home drunk every time I performed and that's a 35 Mm. minute drive on highway. Like it's a miracle that I never got pulled over or that I didn't crash and kill someone because there were numerous times that I should have. I remember getting in my driveway and just crying and being like, Oh my God, I made it like that relief. And you would think mm. that would be enough for someone, but it wasn't like, I was like, well, I did it. I could do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Survival mode. It just kicks in every yes. day. Um, so what, what was that period of time? Like right before you kind of, you know, you got to that place of surrender and uh, getting help. So my father has stage four lung cancer and we decided to move him in with us because from Arizona, because my mm. mom had passed away he had taken care of her and then got sick and like it, he was not doing well on treatment. So we really thought it was end of life preparation. So I went home for a month to pack up my house. It was supposed to be a week and I just kept extending it. 
Um, and I didn't drink or do drugs the whole time I was there. So that was like the first time in probably 16, 15, 16 years that I had been that long off of everything. And I came back on a Wednesday. I had to do a virtual show on Thursday because we were middle of pandemic. And I remember that when Thursday I drove to New Jersey to get drugs because no one near me had them. So I was like going out of my way and lying about being at the mall down the street. And it, I knew something had switched and that night was like an all night party. I got up the next day. We went to P town with our friends and I just never stopped. Um, I don't remember three of the four days we were there. All I know is I moved out of the house we were in because my husband said he wanted a divorce. I moved into a hotel. I found a dealer because I'm connected in all gay cities. I know someone. And I said, bring me whatever you have. And I ended up doing all the cocaine in the world and like other stuff that I said I would never do. Like I didn't inject anything. That's I had boundaries, but like I smoked meth, which I said I was never going to do. And like, I went out on a binge for 24 hours and was kicked out of everywhere. I would go home and take a nap and like get back up and do it again. Like it just wasn't great. It was a Mm -hmm. rough landing and we had to come back to New York and he wouldn't let me take our car because he was afraid that I'd had a mental break, like a mental snap, a psychotic break. So he drove me home and six hours of silence, (laughs) which was enough to kill him. Like no talking. I was just in the fetal position. I had the chair laid all the way back. I was in the fetal position. I had texted a friend that works for a hospital here and was like, I don't know what's going on with me. And we got home and I went in the guest room and like we had some horrible, tough conversations. And that night we were I was in bed. We were watching the Housewives of Orange County. And it was the premiere of the season where Bronwyn's whole story was about being an alcoholic. And everything just clicked. It was like all of the puzzle pieces just went boom. And the next day, I it was middle of COVID. So I found one meeting that was open. And I walked into the AA meeting. And I haven't turned back. I love it. I love that part of your story. Um, Not all of us have, and I'm not saying you had an easy road by any means, but not all of us, um, you know, that isn't necessarily our story. We had to have a little bit stronger of a push or, you know, relapse uh, upon relapse happens and things like that. Um, But I love your story for, this is one of the reasons why I love your story, because it is a um, example, a light of hope that uh, the path to sobriety does not always have to involve an intervention. It doesn't always have to involve treatment. It doesn't always have to involve multiple um, episodes of relapsing. Uh, It's okay. And sometimes that's needed for some people. Yeah. I mean, that's some people's journey, but that's right. You know, and I always try to make people like clearly understand. I knew that I had an issue for almost 10 years before I did anything about it. Mm. I knew in time, there was going to be a time where this all came to a head. I knew before we brought a child into our home, I would have to get my life together. And it just took that one final moment where I felt like I was going to lose everything that Mm. I had to make a decision. And it was the first time in my life that I put everything before a drink and a drug because until then I had thrown everything away. Wow. Yeah. So life obviously started to get better because it does when, (laughs) when, uh, you know, uh, when you start to do that, when you start to put your life before a drink and a drug, um, and you know, what did, uh, what did your work, how did, how did you, how did you start to notice those changes in your life? Um, Well, It was weird because I was still in lockdown. We were still Mm -hmm. very much, I wasn't going into do shows. I did, I think, so I got sober in October, October, November, December, January, February, March, April. I did eight more months of virtual shows sober. 
Um, I didn't tell anyone for the first 30 days because I was, I'm someone that my pride is too much. Like if I announce this and this is the journey I'm on, I have to be solid. Mm -hmm. And I did. And it wasn't easy. The first 90 days with me and my husband were a nightmare. We were literally re-getting to know each other. And we were, everything that we'd built had now shifted and there was no conversation about it. I pulled the rug out from under us and I was like, either get on this train or get off. Um, So that was not easy. And we were dealing with my father living with us and we were in a smaller house and it was just like everything that was working against me that could have taken me out was there. Um, But I immediately knew I have a strong presence in anything I do. I've been very successful online in my businesses. And I knew immediately that somehow I needed to use my voice for the recovery space. Mm. And I looked around New York and all the girls I know that are sober and like they whisper about it, but someone needed to start fucking screaming. And Mm. I just knew that, that I've always said I would know what my purpose on this earth was. And for a very long time, I thought it was drag and entertaining. Now I know that it's drag entertaining and providing a voice for the recovery space, because I say whatever the hell I want to, especially with people in the programs that are like, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm like, well, times Mm -hmm. are changing. So Mm -hmm. I've been, it's had its ups and its downs, but you know, my life did change. I, we got a better house, a bigger house. Um, I didn't feel shame every day. How about that? Like not even the Mm -hmm. gifts of like things, but like, I felt like my husband trusted me again and I didn't feel like people were like, Oh, here comes Logan. Suck the air out of the room. Like, I started understanding that I had fault in things, which I, you couldn't have told me two years ago. Mm. I would have been like, no, Mm. it's everyone else's fault. And then getting to the place where we're comfortable, we started the foster process before realizing that that's not for us. Like we need to do private adoption, but you know, all of, none of this would have happened if I didn't get sober. I can strongly with certainty say I wouldn't even be with my husband if I hadn't got sober. I'm so excited to hear that you um, have pursued that process of bringing uh, bringing a loving home to a child, and you know, doing all the work that you know. We t- our friend, we talk about with our friends all the time how, um, oh my gosh, straight couples that that have kids. There's so many that uh, really shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't have them, oh my God. you know, and and so, but for people like us that can't have them, uh, you know, uh, the same way. Um, we have to go through so many hoops oh and have God. so many more obstacles and considerations to um, to consider. And uh, there's there's so much involved. And um, I, I just love that you're bringing up and talking about that because they're um, we, loving homes are needed. I think there's so much change that's needed to take place in the adoption slash foster system. Oh, yes. Um, it is, you know, for those of you who don't know, in here in Tennessee, it is very difficult. Like, there's no, you got to go. You, we would have to find a private adoption agency in another state because yeah, I mean, is so we're we're out of state. state. I don't know how much he wants me to say because, <laughs> but you know, oh, we're, yeah, we're, no. we're working out of state. Um, and fostering for me, the whole system just is fucked up. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm all about if it's for the child to be reunited with their family, if it's safe, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to foster a child that I don't believe should go back to their home and create that relationship and bond and then send you back to a home that I don't believe you should be in. So immediately mm-hmm. fostering was off the table for me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, well let I, me tell I you, the you... private road isn't so fucking easy either. So. Oh, <laughs> right. I, I know. I know a good bit of it. And yeah. um, so I wish you both all the best on that journey. I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're embarking on it on whatever stage it is. And um, so, yeah, thanks for sharing that part of it. I know it's, it's, of course. Um, 
it can be hard and full of lots and lots and lots of emotions. So um, yeah, best of luck there. And so I wanted to ask you something about uh, you know, you've got a an awesome podcast. I love your podcast so much. Thank I want to talk about the history of that. I'm just going to go ahead and ask the two part question. So go ahead and tell us about your podcast, when it started, why it started, what it was originally about, what it moved to, and when the haters came out. And uh, even re- up till recently, people being ugly about oh, your sobriety journey. So I know there was a lot of, that's a big (laughs) packed box, but just go ahead and unpack it because I know you got lots to say. (laughs) I started the podcast, I got sober in October and by December, you know, it's very, Bob the drag queen was on my podcast this week and he said, it's a very Mm -hmm. sober thing to do. Like you're two months sober and you're like, I'm going to start a podcast. So that's literally what I did. And you had already had a podcast that was a no. Oh, are you talking about when you originally did? Yeah, the original the, the original one was I was two months sober when I started it. Gotcha. Yes. But okay. I, you know, it was in the middle of the pandemic. I had been calling people out the infamous New York meth gala and the Fire Island Pines debacle with Jake Resenkow, who brought in lighting and sound equipment for parties when everything was supposed to be locked down. And I called all that out and like, I wasn't quiet about it and I don't apologize for any of it now because reckless behavior deserves reckless consequences. Mm. And, you know, I started the podcast to just have another place to talk because I could type so much, but like there's something about hearing someone So I did that. I started having random interviews with people like housewives and drag queens. And then a lot of it started turning into talk about recovery. And I was like, okay, this is something. And so I took a few months off and I rebranded from the hardcore sobriety, no, the hardcore honesty to the hardcore sobriety, T-E-A, because I want to just talk the truth about it. And you know, not- for all our friends that don't understand, can you give a brief uh, term of what tea in our world means? <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, it's just talking the truth, um, telling the truth. Like, they call it tea, like you sipping the tea. And it's just like, I, to the way I look at it is, it's screaming the truth, rather people want to hear it or not. And that's mm. just always been how my approach to everything is. And I found in the recovery space that people tiptoe around shit and I'd had it. So I made my a point to be outspoken as fuck everywhere. And I am. And, you know, there's been a comment here or there, but then like recently mm-hmm. I posted after New Year's Eve that the way that Andy Cohen was forcing liquor on Anderson Cooper is uncomfortable and needs to be addressed because the it comes off as him doing it to normalize how fucked up he is and to have mm-hmm. someone else on that train with him. And yep. it's when someone is saying no or pushing back, the fact that it's normal to keep pushing to me is wrong. If this was a woman and someone's sexually approaching her, we wouldn't say it's appropriate to keep going. Right. Um, and so that conversation started, and then I started posting about, you know, there's sober bars popping up or sober spaces. And that started a reaction of uh, 200 comments on my profile. And then some, I heard people were talking about me in group messages, like bar people. So I just put, if you have something to say, just go to my DMs. I'm always open for a conversation, but like, don't be a bitch about it. So someone created a fake Instagram and came to my profile and said, ever since you got sober, you're holier than thou, which just isn't true. Um, They brought up my mom saying that like, if she hadn't died because of a weak immune system, my mom died years before COVID. So like a wrong again. And then they were like, you bully people who drink, which simply isn't true. I talk frequently about how I exist in a space where people drink frequently. I work in bars. My husband drinks. Like, there, I don't bully anyone. What I will do is raise a mirror up to your face and have you take mm-hmm. a good, hard look in it. Yep. And I have no problem. I've had these conversations with my husband, my best friend. We talk about... You know, when someone that this close to you gets sober, it does shine a light on you. 
and you start looking at things. That's and right. if the conversations I'm having are making people uncomfortable, good. Because maybe you need to be uncomfortable to take a look within. But, yeah. you know, there's what I do and how I present, there's always going to be hate. But it was the fact that my mother got brought into it and that it was so false that drove me over the edge. So oh, they got yeah. they got they got the reaction they wanted. <laughs> well, I'm laughing ironically because I and I'm sorry that that happened for you, um, uh, you know, regarding your mom and whatnot. I think we've had ooh, everybody. Uh, I feel like anybody, any side of the fence can say they have been involved in like the worst tension ever in their life, but, you know, surrounding Corona and accusations or you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, no matter what side you're on. And it's only divided people. And I think that's what you're talking about. Because oh, yeah. Talking about, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but, uh, you know, the one thing that I can I can relate to what you were talking about with people just falling aside or ca- calling you out. I was so that person. I remember there, one of my um, best friends, that my longest friends. I don't have a lot of friends that cross the f- threshold with me from pr- uh, my partying days t- into recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I got sober young. I was 24. And, um, and so this girl, she and I got sober together and she, I remember just kind of like you was like, my life is unmanageable. What We were still in college. I, I feel like some things, I'm just going to start going to AA meetings and see what it's like. And she'd just like start, you know, not drinking as much. And then she just like kind of stopped and, Sorry. uh, Oh, you're good. And, um, and man, it drove me crazy. And I was that person being so hateful uh, say, you know, what are you doing? You're ruining our fun. What this is, this is crazy. You're so holier than thou. And she and I laugh about it to this day because obviously I was just, I was that person that needed a lot. I mean, I still had a few years to go of, uh, wrecking my life before I hit a bottom that, that brought me, um, readiness and willingness to ask for and, or accept help for me. It was accept help because I was not asking for it. Um, <laughs> and so I think when you said the louder you, uh, in a manner of speaking, you were referencing that, you know, the louder these people are that are calling you out and fe- feeling and uh, voicing their, their um, feelings of discomfort. Um, I think that says something about where they are in mm-hmm. their journey and what their, their demons are that they're struggling with. Um, and so, you know, I, that's one thing that I've had to learn is, uh, you know, when people, when people get buck like that, um, you know, we're saying <laughs> inside, I just tell myself what, what I know they were saying about me before we're saving a seat, we're saving a seat for you, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, uh, I mean, I just have a problem when people get buck because I like to get buck back. <laughs> right. And that's the Northern, <laughs> that's the Northern in you. Oh my God. Um, you know, and I've made a name for myself being reactive and I've made yeah. a podcast off of it and gained a yeah. large following off of it. And I know how to monetize it. <laughs> so like right. <laughs> I don't do it always, but I'll, when I do it, buckle up because there's a point to it. Yeah. And I'll also get, gather you like a ponytail really quickly. I've never heard that saying before, but I oh, love yes. it. And I'm <laughs> I will gather you together like a ponytail. And... Oh man, that's great. Okay. So uh, I've got just a couple more questions. I know we're, we're running close on time. So um, I wanted to talk to you about the, que- we can't not talk about some Queens and some drag race uh, before we leave. I just want to know your thoughts are you watching this? Have you have you started watching this season? I have. have I, d- I review it. So I have a YouTube page where I review the show. Uh, I use, Me and my friend were one of the original review channels. And then he died and we, st- <laughs> we stopped, obviously. And, oh then my I, gosh. and then I picked it back up and I never like stuck with it. So like now there's people that have stuck with it that have all the viewers. But like I have a solid group that continues to watch. So... I love Drag Race. I will forever be a fan, but it's a lot. Before you before you go into that, can you tell? Because I want to know what your page is, uh, so I can check it out. What is it? It's Logan X Hardcore. Okay, on, on YouTube. YouTube. All right, I'll, I'll be sure we link that too in in the comments below or the the show notes. But yes, let's go into it. What are your thoughts? 
I mean, it's nice that there's trans representation finally, and it's not hidden. So I'm happy to see mm-hmm. Carrie Colby in Cornbread. Um, I'm a very big fan of Carrie and Alyssa Hunter um, mm-hmm. before the show. Uh, there's a straight man. That's fun and different. Um, mm-hmm. I think we could have maybe accepted some of our own community to the show first, like Drag Kings or... Girl, there's a million thoughts on it. But, you know, mm. at the end of the day, it's a television show that needs production value. And it's I love that the show's still going. Like I said, I'm forever a fan. I think it's changed the face of drag. Maybe some people think it's for the better. Maybe some people don't. I think that boring, talentless people get amplified voices, which they shouldn't have. Mm. And... I think a lot of talented people will never see the light of that show by sadly not getting on or by choice. I wanted it for so long and you could not pay me enough money to go on that show now. So it's interesting that as you say that I immediately thought of, cause I live in such a big music town. I mean, you know, you, you go to LA and you can almost guarantee that your server is somebody trying to make it an acting. Well, it's uh-huh. a very, it's very that here in Nashville for music. music. And um, I think that, I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine living in a place where everybody doesn't love music, but I feel like here it's very, very appreciated, even if you're not in, in music in your business or, or whatever. Um, and, but I can't help but think of that parallel of, uh, you know, the voice and American Idol. Um, I mean, I know there are so many differences. I'm not trying to c- compare our community of LGBTQI. Oh no, and all but that, I know exactly but, what you're saying. But oh my gosh, the the when you said that you know there are the, the certain people that are given a platform that end up going really far that didn't work as hard. Um, you know, there's one thing if you've got. Um, yeah, there's some people that ha- that d- weren't born with a great voice, but they worked really hard to market themselves and they put in the work and they did whatever and they became a great writer. I could name five of them, but I'm not, I don't want any haters to come, you know, but <laughs> it's like one of those things. You either have the talent from the beginning and that takes yeah. you far or you put and or you put in a lot of work. But if you don't have those things and for whatever reason, the show gives you this space and production gives you a following and pushes these other people to the side that are so full of talent yep. and have put in the work for years. It is, it can be disheartening. I've seen it happen to too many people like Bianca Del Rio is one of my best friends. She was my best man at my wedding. We lived together mm-hmm. for many years. Like that was so well-deserved. And that was someone mm-hmm. that for six years said, I will never go on that show. And wow. she didn't watch it with me. We lived together. She would be like, what the fuck are you watching? And then they approached her. She didn't audition. They sought her out and got her. But then there's people like Tina Burner who, you know, I've said what I've said about her package at Drag Race, but she is very talented at what she does. And none of it was showcased. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's a television show. And I feel bad because I see these girls putting their all. They're going all in. Like, this is going to change my life. And then it doesn't. And sadly, Mm -hmm. I feel like this has really changed. You're not going to tour for a year afterwards. We're in a pandemic. You don't even know if you're going to tour at all. So Mm. is it worth it? I always say that I'm married. I own my house. I own two. I own a car. uh, I have a retirement plan. I'm going to have a child. I really won in the end. Like, take your money and your sack of followers and have a great time because... I have that plus some. Yeah. Well, and uh, I think one of the things that I have so much uh, mad respect for you uh, about is that you have just taken, I think what we're called to do and what we're supposed to do when we enter the sobriety journey is just uh, this path of authenticity. Not that you weren't already on it, but you um, have truly just taken hold of it and embracing the lessons that you've needed to learn, kind of like you outlaid before. Just, you know, we take that inventory of our character defects, what we have to get honest about. It's pretty terrifying. (laughs) It is, but look at how you're using it now and, 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 you know, taking it like this just great mixture of you know all of your wonderful 
strengths, weaknesses, past blemishes, and all of those things. I think that it's one of the best things that we could do rather than try and pursue this image of perfection. I think that we are heavily going to a place as society. Now, I'm not talking about the media necessarily, but as society, I hope and believe that we are we're gaining momentum and heading to this place where it is being celebrated that we connect over our differences. We connect over um, our, the things that we've made it through that don't aren't pretty. Um, and uh, cause I know the human heart more readily does connect that way, but I think yes. it's time that we outwardly start to embrace that and own it. So for that, I am so grateful for your journey and that you are being such a loud, unapologetic voice about, <laughs> you know, all, th- all the things, all the things. So in closing, I just wanted to ask you, you know, for that person who's listening, watching today, um, you know, that identifies with uh, a part or all of your story, what, what bit of encouragement would you like to leave with them? Oh, God, this is literally like when RuPaul holds that little photo up and it's like, what would you say to five-year-old you? I would say run. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It doesn't get better. Um, No. (laughs) I would say- It does get better. Listen, it took its time. I think that, I think a lot of people think like, like this, life gets better. And it took me 10 years. It took 10 years of knowing I had an issue for it to get better. But- it gets there and you just have to know that your journey is very different from anyone else's. And you may have parallels to stories and you may identify with people, but like you have to do what's best for you. And if that for you in that moment means you need to go to recovery today, like get to it. I didn't feel like my life was going to end if I didn't go into recovery in 2012. And I just, want people to live very honestly, because if I honestly listened to myself a long time ago, it wouldn't have taken 10 years. Um, Mm. I was lucky that I had a supportive system of people around me that never let me fall. I was always lifted up. I was always caught. It's important to listen to your body. (laughs) Um, Mm. Your body will let you know. And if you have the thoughts of like, do I have a drinking problem? Do, do I have a drug problem? Like, I don't truly believe that everyone in the world needs to be an AA. I think yeah. there are ways of getting sober that are not as extreme as what some people do. But I think I would just say to someone that identifies with anything that I've said, just listen to what I say, because I am very honest about the good times, the bad times, the hard times, the the truth in our community, the ugly in our community, the fact that people are uncomfortable that sobriety is becoming a thing. Like there's a lot to it. And I just say, always push the boundaries because the worst thing someone can do is say no. Mm. That's right. I probably just told people to stay in their addictions and just keep pushing the boundaries. (laughs) Well, no, I think that you said just what the big book does. If you don't think that, uh, you know, if, if you, if, if you, if you think that you, you're not convinced that you are an alcoholic, go out and try some more controlled drinking. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, that's what and, I did. And, and, and that's the thing. We all have to hit our own bottom and what that bottom looks like can be different for everybody. And I think in a nutshell, that's what you were talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, but somebody, I've heard this said actually a couple different times that you can exit on any floor. If you think about it like an ele- elevator mm-hmm. shaft, it doesn't have to be the very bottom, the ground bla- basement floor that you know. Um, and some of us just so wanted to keep digging. Right. Right. And uh, you know, there's all kinds of things. Again, for me, I was not about to get in recovery when I was, I mean, all signs pointed to you need to, but Yes. Um, so hopefully, uh, you know, it's, it's my hope that, uh, your episode and, you know, all these other ones that I'm doing somehow happen across somebody's path that causes this conversation, you know, plants a seed. Um, because, you know, the sooner that we, we can, uh, make choices to start loving ourselves, 
and exit that, get, you know, get off on a higher floor, uh, the better the outcome can be. So anyway, absolutely. well, thank you so much, Logan. You truly are a light and, um, it's, it's really fun talking to you. So this was, this was really good for me and I'm, I'm grateful to share this platform with your message. Well, vice versa. Awesome. With that, I want to remind everybody, it's never too late to start loving yourself and your only one decision away from a completely different life. Thanks, everybody, and have a good day. For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life, and it is never too late to start loving yourself. 